going to be looking at over the next uh, little bit here. Uh, we started in chapter 2 last week, and we're going to be going through uh, next, uh, next week through this chapter. Um, and as we look at this, we typically recognize Daniel chapter 2 for, its, uh, for the dream. The dream that, uh, uh, that Daniel is asked to interpret. Um, we're actually not going to get to the dream itself till next week. Uh, but we're going to kind of look at the, the setup to this story uh, this week. And so as we do that, uh, we're going to turn to Daniel chapter 2. <coughs> Excuse me. We read in Daniel chapter 1 this morning in the, in the text that, that Daniel's given this ability to, to tell dreams and to tell visions. Uh, and so in, we're going to get to this in a little bit here. Daniel chapter 2 begins in verse 1. He says, In the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams, and his spirit was so troubled that his sleep left him. So the king gave the command to call the magicians, the astrologers, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans to tell the king his dreams. So they came and stood in front of the king. And he said to them, I have had a dream, and my spirit is anxious to know this dream. So the Chaldeans spoke, uh, they spoke in Aramaic, and they said, O king, live forever and tell your servants the dream, and we will give the interpretation. So the king answered and said to them, No, my decision is firm. If you do not make known the dream to me, and its interpretation, you will be cut in pieces. Your houses will be made into an ash heap. However, if you tell me the dream and its interpretation, you will receive gifts from me. Rewards, great honor. Therefore, tell me the dream and the interpretation. So they answered again and said, Let the king tell his servants the dream, and we will give the interpretation. The king said, Now I know for certain that you are stalling. That's my interpretation of this. <laughs> because you see that my decision is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream, there is only one decree for you. You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me until the time is changed. Therefore, tell me the dream, and I will know it, that you can give me its interpretation. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who can tell the king this matter. Therefore, no king, lord, or ruler has ever asked such things of any magician, astrologer, or Chaldean. It is a difficult thing that the king requests, and there is no other who can tell it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. For this reason, the king now was angry, furious, and he gave them <coughs> a command to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. So the decree went out, and they began killing the wise men. So they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Well, with the counsel and the wisdom, Daniel answered Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. So he answered and said to Arioch, the king's captain, Why is the decree from the, captain, or the king so urgent? So Arioch made uh, the decision known to Daniel. So Daniel went in and asked the king to give him time so that he might tell the king the interpretation. Daniel went to his house and made a decision known to Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, and the companions so that they might seek the mercies of God of heaven concerning this secret, so that Daniel and his companions might not perish with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. 
And the secret was revealed to Daniel in the night vision. So Daniel blessed the God of heaven. And he said, blessed be the name of God forever and ever. For wisdom and might are his. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and raises up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and secret things. He knows what's in the darkness. And light dwells with him. I thank you and praise you, O God of my fathers, that you have given wisdom and might, and you have made known to me what we have asked of you, for you have made known to us the king's demand. We talked, our our beginning sermons as we're talking about our interactions with people are actually, where we're beginning has to do with uh, what comes before our interaction We've talked about uh, foundation, right? We've talked about uh, the inter- internal character that we develop. And this is, all goes into our, our interactions with the world as we, as we try to get the right focus uh, on how to, uh, to interact with the world. And so what we're going to be, we're kind of be going to continue this idea a little bit. We're talking about premise this week. A premise is what we accept as factually true. Um, it is the group of ideas that form the basis of our actions and decisions. It's, it's beyond, uh, and I want to go beyond just the, the concept of the Bible. We've already talked about that, talking about uh, accepting the Bible and, and the foundation of what we say. That, that the Bible um, is, is superior to, to anything that would compete with it. We already uh, established that last week, and, uh, but we're going to today look at something a little bit beyond this. This is how we look at the Bible in, in terms of, or just how we look at reality. Um, and we're going to see a contrast between Daniel and these Chaldean wise men in their premise, um, just their existence. The way they approach this request of Nebuchadnezzar is, I, I think, gives us some, some good illustrations for uh, and, and examples that we can learn from in our um, lives um, even here, uh, across and in a different uh, time and place from Daniel. And, and so with each of these, uh, we're going to look at three contrasts uh, between Daniel and, and these men. And, and note the two types of premise that they have. So the first one is uh, assumptions. Uh, the, that's the, the first thing that we notice, that we're going to notice a, a number of assumptions that they make. Uh, an assumption is reaching a conclusion without having a uh, evidence to support it. Right? Often it's full of holes. It's missing a factual basis. It's often built on spotty logic um, or ideas that have been accepted as a fact without being challenged. Now, the most dangerous assumptions are the kind, uh, and we're going to see this too, that, that have a little bit of truth in them. Right? It makes it a little palatable because, yeah, that sounds logical, and I know some of this to be true. And so, so we, we jump off of that and, and build some assumptions. We're gonna, I, looked up, I went through thesource.com, and I, I couldn't really find a good um, antonym for assumption. There probably is one. I couldn't find it. Uh, but we're going to talk about observation. Uh, and again, I don't know if that's a perfect antonym for assumption, but, but we all want to figure things out, and so we use our powers of, of observation to figure things out. And a lot of times we connect things that, that shouldn't be, and this is when we start assuming. Now, the reality, however, much like, much like where an assumption, a lot of assumptions have a little bit of this and a whole lot of 
jumping to conclusions, our observations aren't 100%. As we said, God hasn't told us everything we need to know about everything. So, so there are assumptions even in observing. Um, we all want to figure things out. We don't have access to 100% of information. So we, we, we do make leaps of faith in, in certain areas. However, what we want to do is make those leaps of faith as, as few as possible. And, and weight things on the observation side. And we'll see this with Daniel as well. And, and so we're going to notice the difference between assumption and observation uh, between, uh, between Daniel and these Chaldeans and in three areas. And so the first area is capacity. Now what do I mean by capacity? Uh, well, in Daniel uh, chapter uh, 2.10, um, he says... <clears throat> The Chaldeans answered the king and said, this is, There is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand, for no great and powerful king has ever asked such a thing of any magician and enchanter or Chaldean. So now he's observed something, or he thinks he's observed something. Um, as we said, there's a little bit of truth in here. He's observed that this has never been done before. We ever heard that? Well, this, no, this is, no one's ever tried this before. And the assumption then is that since it's never been tried before, it can't be done. Right? And it, sometimes we carry this, this uh, assumption into our interactions uh, with the world. Since, since this has never been done, you ever had a difficult task? This, no one's ever tried this before. I don't think we should try this. It can't work. This will never work. And we hear that all the time. And so the assumption is basically pessimistic. It starts with an observation, but it, it extrapolates that far beyond. So, so there's a little truth, and, and, and there's this whole area where no one has any idea. Has, has, this, has this Chaldean, whoever said this, has he observed everywhere, every king, every person? Well, I think had he had a Bible, he probably would, would have known that, that God has the ability uh, to to give understanding of dreams before, probably not the first time, uh, but he, he has a very limited view. Now let's look, however, let's contrast that with Daniel. Daniel is basically optimistic. Uh, in chapter 2, verse uh, 16 through 18, Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. So we already get a different sense a different tone in, in how Daniel approaches the situation. Do you think Daniel was a little bit nervous? Of course he was. But he's approaching this from an optimistic viewpoint. So Daniel went to his house to make the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, and told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men from Babylon. And so, so there's this, this almost like this observation that, that he's, he's thinking... Listen, we, we know the backstory. We know Daniel's, Daniel knows the history. Well, Daniel, of course, has studied history. He knows the story of, of great men. Daniel, by the way, in, before he went to Babylon in Jerusalem, would have most likely run across the path of Jeremiah. He was uh, about 30 or 40 years younger than Jeremiah. Uh, Jeremiah didn't go to Babylon. He was, uh, he was taken captive to Egypt and probably died there. But he would have run across him. Now we know uh, he had 
access to his writings. They didn't have big publishers, so he probably had scrolls that were written by Jeremiah himself because at the end of it, uh, at the end of this whole thing, he's, he's looking for the time when this is all going to be over, and he's quoting, he's quoting Jeremiah. And so he's understanding things. He probably knew Jeremiah, and Jeremiah is a man of visions and dreams. He knows all this stuff. He, he understands a little bit more than these Chaldeans. See? So, so he can speak from a little bit more observation. And so it forms optimism. We have a statement, past results are not necessarily indicative of future performance, right? So what if it's never worked before? Maybe you were trying the wrong angle. Maybe there's something you were missing. And we're going to see what these Chaldeans were missing. So he asks God, Daniel asks God and, and, and asks um, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah to assist in prayer uh, for this answer and he does not assume that God will or won't that's important that there's a, a measure of realism in here he doesn't assume well well God's going to do this absolutely he says let's pray that he might he might not and there's always that understanding there there needs to be realism but there's a general uh, sound of optimism in in what he's doing well, I want to look at what's behind a little bit of this optimism. Uh, the second thing has to do with causality. What, what I mean by causality is what we attribute uh, the origin of something or, or authority. So in, uh, <coughs> excuse me, in uh, Daniel chapter 2, verse 10 and 11, he's, the Chaldeans answered the king and said, There's not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand. For no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter of Chaldean. We have kind of already referenced this. Um, the thing that the king asks is difficult. Yes, yes it is. And no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. We're going to come back to this verse and pull a couple of things out of this. But I want to pull one idea out right now. And that is that one of the assumptions, this is one of those assumptions again that, that has an element of truth in it. It is difficult. And the Chaldeans rep recognize one more thing, that this type of an answer can only come from deity. They recognize, and it's kind of interesting, is, is they, they're kind of revealing things, something about themselves. They're revealing that uh, they don't have too much confidence in, in what they support. Uh, it, well, this can't be done. Well, why not? If you, if you believe that this, this comes from the gods, don't the gods give you power? Well, we're not too confident in our gods, what it comes down to. And so who they attribute uh, their authority to uh, shows their, their underhandedness that, that Nebuchadnezzar recognized right away as well. Notice that the, the men had to lie so that even Nebuchadnezzar, he's... he's, he's He's, he's seeing what's going on. And he's, he really wants this. Now, this kind of interesting is we read this story and we just assume certain things about the story. Speaking of assuming, this probably was not something that they were used to. A king just saying, I want you to read my mind. What, gave, what gives him the, the idea to ask this? 
That's never, that is probably, in, in Nebuchadnezzar's probably never asked that before. And something prompts him, I don't know what, I have no idea what. It is an interesting thing, though, that something prompts him to go, I want you to read my mind and then tell me what my mind means. Because <laughs> I, don't, I don't get it. And, and maybe he just always had the suspicion of these people. But their insecurity shows that their gods had never come through for them. They had always had to have backup plans, and that backup plan was usually lying. People usually recognize that the things they they build their life on aren't so stable. Oh, they might pursue that and and claim it, but, but they always need backup plan for the backup plan. You know what I mean? People understand that the gods that they build their lives on really aren't there for them. But what is Daniel's observation? I look at Daniel's observation. Talk about this. Oh, hello. Nope. That's not me, I don't think. I didn't do that. Let me get back to about screen four. Keep going. Okay. Let me talk about this here. Um, Daniel 1, 17 and 18. Um, I want to read that. Or excuse me, Daniel 2, 17 and 18. <clears throat> he says... Daniel went into his house, made the decision known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, that they might seek the mercies from the God of heaven concerning his secrets, so that Daniel and his companions might not perish with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. <coughs> Daniel had observed fulfillment. And so he, he understood. This is the God of heaven. He understood this wasn't about the gods. He rightly attributes the source, the origin of, of all things that happen, the causality of the, of the universe. And so since he's uh, observed that, since he has a, a knowledge of it, a first-hand knowledge of it, he can speak from some authority and have some confidence when he, he makes this prayer to God. He doesn't have to have a backup plan. There's a story, I shared it, and I was looking for it, and I, I, I can't find the book that I, I got it from. I, I know in class, um, our Sunday morning class last, um, uh, uh, the end of last year when we were talking about evidences, I went through uh, this story, and it, and it was kind of really interesting that in Athens there was a, a plague of some sort, and um, this is several hundred years before Christ, and so the, uh, everybody tried, they sacrificed to every idol in, in Athens. They said that you, you could barely walk without seeing an idol. There's just so many idols. And so they, they went to a man, uh, a, a poet from Crete. He was a poet, philosopher, religious guy. And uh, so he came and he looked at the situation. He says, what you do is this. Take a bunch of sheep and, uh, and let them go. Uh, and uh, wherever... The, the ones laid down, 
uh, kill them there, build an altar, and kill them there. And, and sacrifice to a god because it's obvious that we don't have all the gods. We've missed one somewhere. And so, uh, so they did that. Um, so years later, these were all, they, they had all these altars to an unknown god. This is not, this is an altar to an unknown god. This is actually in Rome, not Athens, that this was found. Uh, so there, in various places, there are these gods. Now, this is sounding familiar, isn't it? Uh, so one of the, the, the guy that had gone to the man was uh, uh, young uh, when he went to visit the poet from Crete. And uh, he was an older man, and he, he was walking through Athens, him and a friend, and they, they, they recognized all these old altars are broken down. And so they repaired one of them, an altar to an unknown god. Uh, and that is quite possibly uh, the altar that Paul later found. By the way, that Paul is aware of this, that that poet from Crete was quoted by Paul in a different, uh, different letter. Uh, and so Paul was aware of, of that man. Uh, it's kind of interesting, this whole story. But, but there is a creator of heaven that... that that they sacrificed to. They said, there's something that we don't know that's out there, and to him we're asking to stop this plague. We don't know who it is. And so Paul comes in later and says, what you worship without knowing, I'm now going to declare to you that thing that happened that you didn't know, that God that helped you, that you had no idea who that was, I'm going to share that to you. And, that, and, and this, is, this is repeated over and over in different cultures. But that God of heaven... Daniel understands there's a God from heaven that does, a creator God, an origin God that, that helps people. And so there is that assumption of based on observation in his own life. The last thing, I want to talk about communication. Well, <clears throat> verse 11. Go back to that. It says, the, king, the thing that the king asks is difficult. And no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. That's an interesting statement. So in here, there's an assumption about how God communicates with his people. And so, so they are misunderstood. They've made an assumption. This has no observation. This has, well, maybe in, in some sense it's true for them. Their gods haven't been able to communicate with them because their gods are made of, excuse me, stone and, and wood and all these various things that they've made them out of. But they have this assumption that God is separate, that, that God's not involved with things. And so they've never felt a connection with their deities. He's distanced from them. And so how could they trust him? And so, in many of their cases, they, they, they tried to connect things that they knew. And so, in these attempts to connect things, they see bad things happen. So, that, well, God must be punishing us. Does that sound familiar? They see a punitive God. They see immoral gods. Look at any mythology and notice the numerous character defects of the gods that are worshipped in, in, in any culture. Be they Greek or Roman or... Uh, Hindu, or whatever the deities are, look at the character defects in deities. And we contrast that 
with what Daniel sees. Uh, Daniel sees a relational God. Notice this verse, uh, Daniel chapter uh, 2, verse 21 and 22. It says, He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what's in the darkness and the light dwells in him. And I want to notice just a couple of things um, in here that as we look at this relational God that Daniel is connected to. There's a, there's a couple of things here. First of all, he is directly involved. He says he, he talks about the times and seasons. Now, Daniel here directly attributes things to God that we understand probably are indirectly seasons. We, we, we know that seasons happen, right? Why, why is there snow outside? Well, the angle of the earth and, uh, and so the sun is in the whatever solstice. And all. We, we recognize that those things have natural causes and effects and we can kind of predict, not exactly the weather, you know, how many inches we're going to get this week or not is kind of up for debate, but, but we kind of recognize when things are going to change and we can plan accordingly. God, Daniel probably doesn't have this understanding of the universe like we have it in the solar system. And yet he attributes this as a thing directly to God. Is Daniel wrong? In a sense, yes. But is he wrong? No, he's not really. Because all of this comes from causality. In other words, all of this comes from God. Who is it that made nature? It's all from God. So whether directly or indirectly, it's from God. Uh, I will say this, if you're going to assume something about God, it is always safe to assume things on the side that give God more credit than less credit. Now, if, if you get to heaven and, and, uh, and you say, God, I, I thought that you were, you, know, you were making it snow, just you, know, you were doing that, or, and, and that the, the winter happened because you know, God's not going to... No, that had to do with the rotation of the earth, dummy. God's probably not going to you know, be too hard on you for that, I assume. Better to give him more credit than too little credit. But he is directly involved, and Daniel recognizes the, the basic idea that he is involved. He is, uh, the second thing, he is uh, domestically relevant. What do I mean by that? Well, it says he, he sets up kings and, 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 and puts them down. And, and according to his plan, whether it be world events or political events, he is, he's involved in things. And I know we don't always think that God would do that. God, what kind of a God would do this thing or allow this thing? We say that all the time. What kind of a God would allow this thing? It's not for you to care about that. Let God handle what kind of God he is. It's not up for me to determine what kind of God he is. He is. And he is involved. He's, he's relevant in the domestic events taking place around us. It doesn't make a difference what you think of your governors or presidents or, or mayors or whatever they be. Here you have a man that we just read was arbitrarily killing people because they couldn't read his mind. And God says, that's my servant. That's the whole story. We're going to read this dream. And Daniel knows 
this dream. He's been given the understanding of this dream and this prayer that he's praying there of, of thanks to God. He's already been given the understanding and he knows what this means. And, and the, this is going to get into the establishment of Nebuchadnezzar as authority. And yet we know the moral character, at least to this point, of Nebuchadnezzar. He's not absent because you don't like the results. He's not distant. He's involved and you just might not like how he's involved. That's the, the, the key there. Third thing, he is essentially good. And this contrasts with our last point almost and how we think he should do things. But notice he says that light dwells in him. Where, where all these other gods were kind of flawed and immoral and had their own agendas. He says, light dwells in God. All these assumptions were contrasting with Daniel's view What does he say when he goes to see uh, Hananiah? He says, ask that God will give mercy. He believed in a merciful God. He is a relational and basically good God. He's opposed to darkness, this says. He knows what's in the darkness and light dwells in him. He's opposed to darkness. So he is essentially good. And the fourth thing, he is spiritually engaged in man's life. It says that he gives knowledge. Now this sounds a little bit bizarre. It's because it says he gives knowledge to those who have understanding. It's like, wait a minute. Don't they already have the understanding? Why do you give knowledge if they already have it? Seems like you should go, go, go talk to the people who don't have understanding and give them some. You look at the people who around you, you know, they don't have understanding. God, you should give them a little knowledge. We kind of need to understand. Knowledge and understanding are not synonyms. If you think about it like this, you have a, if, uh, if you had a file that had all the secret answers to life, right? This is the key to life. And you gave it to me and I've got, I, I'm running, uh, you know, Windows 3.1. I've got an old Briggs and Stratton computer, you know. Uh, and, you give me that file, it's useless to me, right? It's useless. I'm going to see this. I, I transfer that file over. You can, I can put that on that computer, and I'm going to see this little white thing. And I'm going to click on it, and it's not going to do anything for me. Because my computer has no way to interpret it. And that's what this is talking about. He says, you have, uh, God gives knowledge to those who have understanding. God gives knowledge to those who have the structure to to process the information. The information is no good unless people have made the right observations in life. If they're not willing to observe a God, then all these answers, reading this Bible, you ever hear how many people take the Bible out of context? And, and, and I, mean, and, I mean, people who, I'm not even talking about people who claim Christianity, but I'm talking about, you'll, you'll see the Bible used to, to support this argument politically or, or this social thing. It's like, oh my goodness, that, you, you've taken that so That was not even what that's talking about. You'll hear atheists quote the Bible, trying to, to, to support something, and it's, well, God couldn't mean this and this. He said this. It's like, 
you don't even understand what that's talking about. You don't have the, the, the mental framework to speak on the subject. You sound ignorant. But God is spiritually engaged in man's life. He's willing to give knowledge. And James says that. Listen, if you pray, God will give you that wisdom. That you have to pray without doubting. You have to pray in a God who is relational. Who is essentially good. And so, as we close, that's the question we want to ask. Is, hello. It's not there. Which God lives with me? Which God lives with me? Or we might need to ask the question, does God live with me? Which assumptions have I built my life on? Do, does a Chaldean God live in me? And what do I mean by that? Have I lived my life on the, on the premise that I need a backup plan? Do, do I premise my life on the fact that, that maybe bad things are happening be, to me because God is out to get me? Or, or that if I, if I do this thing, God might punish me? So I have to worry about everything, every step of the day, God might punish me. Am I, am I worried about a punitive God? Or do I worship a merciful God? Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't worry about God's justice. But sometimes we take that pessimistic view of God that shows him as a God that is basically bad and wants to hurt people. Is God distant from you? Do you feel distant from God? God's not involved in my life. I'm too small. God doesn't care about me. We have a lot of these Chaldean gods. Which God lives in me? This is going to shape how I interact with people around me. What kind of a God am I going to introduce to people? Am I going to talk about how much God is going to punish them and punish them and punish them? I'm talking about justice, yes. But am I bringing a a God of grace to people. As we close, we might need to ask the question, does God live with me? Does God live in your life? This is an opportunity. If, if you have not made a decision to have God in your life, this is a moment to begin with the right God. To not have the backup plans of your 401k. And all these other things that you hope are, are, are going to give meaning to your life. To meet Christ in baptism. And begin a life with the God of the universe.